The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show brought to you by The Athletic with The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball along with Michael and Phil Hay straight from Jesse Marsh's press conference from The Athletic as well. Uh, twice a week this show, Mondays and Fridays. Friday edition, this one is where Phil Hotfoot sit from the press conference at Thorpe Arch. Uh, straight into the studio and we reflect on what Jesse's been saying and then Monday we react to the game. So Monday we'll be back to look back on the Arsenal game this weekend. We will be previewing it in due course. Um, shows are all free, by the way. You can listen ad-free when you subscribe to The Athletic. You can get the ad-free pods uh, all Phil's writing about Leeds, joining with the match day discussions, all that sort of thing at theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Pound a month for six months at the minute, theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod. Into the post presser chat then, Phil. Um, Liz, what, what, Liz Truss or uh, Jesse Marsh? Uh, well, Jesse Marsh is, uh, sorry, Liz Truss said that the Chancellor Quarteng has now gone. It's now Jeremy Hunt, who's back in Quarteng, lasted less time than, uh, so outlasted Milanich, but less time than. Brian Clough and Jock Stein. It is like the Chilino era in politics, isn't it? I was telling um, Adam Hurry, who does a football cliches podcast, that um, football Twitter speak seems to be flowing into politics and other things. <laughs> I, I Finished saw, party. I saw somebody mm-hmm. reply to um, a tweet about the economy saying, Sterling is a finished currency. <laughs> and I also saw somebody replying to a tweet about Liz Truss saying something like, um, Keir Starmer is clear. And I was thinking, it's, it's only a matter of time before they start calling Liz Truss Priz Pros. And maybe this is the week. <laughs> I don't understand half of what it means, but it sounds entertaining. What was your big takeaway then from, from speaking to Jesse? Because you lit the blue touch paper under him a little bit today. Then you? you got a little bit narky about the, the question about plan B for anybody who's not aware of what this is. You said to him, you know, this team's set up to play in a particular way. I'm paraphrasing now. Why don't you repeat the question? No, that's pretty much what I said. You know, system uh, team has been built to to fit a system. Um, are they are they built to play a different system? Uh, how adaptable are they, and how much do you teach adaptability? I thought he answered the question well. Actually, he was talking about shades of grey and saying that when it comes to tweaking a plan or changing a plan or whatever else, it isn't necessarily a leap from one set system to another set system that you can. You can almost do it incrementally through change players off the bench, um, through systems, formations, um, all that sort of thing that can, I guess, tweak a team subtly rather than majorly. But I do think on the basis of what we've seen this season, there is the question of how suited um, the players are to playing out with this style which relies so much on pressing, counter-pressing, um, turn of a ball, transitional play when it works. And we saw it work really well against Chelsea. Um, and I thought it worked pretty well in the first half against Palace, he said he actually thought that was the best performance they've had under him or best 45 minutes they've had under him at Palace. I'm not so sure it was as good as Chelsea, but I, I kind of take his point there. Um, it seemed to me on Sunday that when it came to actually reasserting themselves in a game that had changed um, and was different to how it had been initially when Leeds were dominating, it was difficult. It was difficult to rein it back in. Um, and now, I is, say, is, that, I, is that why you asked the question then? Yeah, I'm, very I'm, much so, yeah. Just yeah. to see what he thought of the, the inability of the team to get back into it. Is that the, what you're trying and, to get at? And also because the signings that have been made in the summer, the, the specific roles and positions that they've been signed for feed into this system that he's, he wants to play um, and the, the, the tactical format that, that he's come up with, tactical plan that he has. And the question has to be asked, I think, you know, when you, your form isn't great, when the performances have been a bit mixed, is there a way out? You know, is there a way in games where you find yourself compromised or you find yourself struggling slightly to to change it? How do you change it? What are his ideas for changing it? He said that they go through every week from Plan A to Plan Z, as he put it, and you know, it did touch on himself and the the idea of Plan B, which gets discussed a lot and did get discussed with them um, with his predecessor as well. I think the difference for his predecessor was that. 
plan B came up in the periods when it wasn't going great and prior to his final season it was very rarely not going great you know it did tend to be very good more often than not it's been far more mixed uh, under Marsh and I think as time goes on everybody's just waiting to see is this going to settle into consistent form and I guess a steady steady league position further on in the season Within this range of plans then that he, he, he says exist where I suppose it's a legitimate question to ask where they were against Southampton and Palace games that for a long period we looked in charge of and like we were heading for an easy win and then we were unable to, to turn the tide when they when they got on top. I think he accepts that Southampton the substitutions should have come earlier uh, and he referenced that today, the fact that at 2-0 up you could feel the tide turning slightly and there was a delay in sending anyone on from the bench. There was a call I think particularly for Cleek at some point before Southampton scored the first goal and once the first goal went in the impetus shifted completely as it, as it quite often does. And you know the price of that was was two points dropped. Palace, to my mind, felt slightly different. There, there were a lot of changes at Palace. There were substitutions off the bench. There were alterations to the system, but it didn't really seem to translate into you know suddenly a far more creative performance. Didn't I think translate into a performance that looked like it was going to win the game from one all as opposed to to lose it? That would be my point. Is it more about the efficacy of of Plan B, C, D, whatever it might be, rather than? him actually having one. I think we do we accept that he has they have multiple tactical plans because their coaches were not obviously so you think right okay yeah fair enough accept that but does it work? Well I think you have to and I think in any game when you're managing in game you're going to do things that are based on the way that the game goes. Um so things are going to you're going to have variables like players getting sent off for example like they had against Aston Villa players having a poor day where normally they're pretty consistent um or or tend to play well and that's when you have to kind of adapt on your feet. Um I I think there have been games where Marsh has managed them far better than others. I think the Chelsea game, for example, it wasn't done and dusted that at 2-0 by any means. And I think that was handled in a way that that kept Leeds on top, kept them in a position to win it and, and I guess kept the, the foot on um, on Chelsea's neck. Less so away at Southampton, certainly less so last weekend at Palace. It was, it was, it was difficult at Palace, I felt, from half an hour onwards. I think I said on Twitter that it, seemed to me to have been a little bit of a slow slide from really dominant opening and an opening that you felt had set Leeds up to win on the day to a position later in the second half where it did feel as if if there was going to be a third goal in the game, it was going to come from Palace and it did. Do you think this um, this sort of loss of control aspect that we, we sometimes see in football, you know, just it happens like that, doesn't it? You can't control all games from start to finish because there are two teams who are playing. But this this loss of control that we saw against the likes of Southampton and and Palace. Do you think that kind of contributes to the, the, the question and answer about Crescenzio Somerville when he said today, I need to find a way to get him more minutes? And we were sort of joking facetiously here in the office just before that, was like, well, put him on earlier then. Um, <laughs> or, you know, playing from the start, that's how you give him more minutes. But it's actually, it's about the shape of games, isn't it? And when is the right moment to introduce him? Do you think that loss of control or lack of control in games recently has contributed to him not getting as many minutes as he might want to give him? It does make a difference, without a doubt. I think there is, in, in that um, that attacking line behind the number nine, there is definitely a pecking order. And I think at the moment, my guess would be in Marsh's head that um, Sinistera, Harrison and Aronson making up the three is is his preferred choice. Um, we saw against Villa that uh, Harrison and Sinistera played on the opposite side of the pitch um, to what you'd normally expect. Harrison in particular out on the right. But I think that's what he'd go for when, when everybody's fit and available. And if you have somebody like Sinistera playing very well, then the opportunities for Somerville become more limited. 
if you have somebody like Harrison, who, as we're going to talk about in, in part three, is so heavily involved in the attacking play at Leeds, um, almost to excess, you know, there's a huge amount that is going through Harrison. Again, he come, becomes pretty fundamental to the system and fundamental to the, the success of it. Um, that's when it is a challenge to to squeeze through 21s and, and to get them into the side. There's also the judgment, I suppose, about how effective the 21s are likely to be and, and how good they're going to be. I mean, some of them, to my mind, has looked in a lot of 21s games and people say this about him in training as well, like he's deserved to, deserved to have minutes in the first team. But I can't say he's really shone in the first team yet. And, and I don't know whether you can really say that's down to him, but he hasn't had a, a particularly big effect. And I guess we all watch a lot more of the 21s these days because it's far more accessible. It's, it's available usually on Twitter. It's usually free to watch. Um, most of it is televised. And I think that probably heightens the temptation to look at every 21 who is having a good spell in that league and at that level and to think, well, you know, it's it's time to give them a chance, time to, to push them through. But you still have to be pretty, you know, carefully judgmental about it. And you still have to take a kind of honest and, and professional view about who's actually ready for it. The one thing I'd say about Somerville is that they have let Dan James go and Somerville is very much in the picture. Um, so when it comes to players who should be used to change a game or, or are there to be used, then he has to be one of them and he, and he has to figure. I think part of the frustration around Somerville was against Palace. It seemed like a perfect opportunity to actually give him a go because we've seen Rodrigo play at 10 absolutely loads of times. As To my mind, it's never worked or has worked maybe once or twice. So to not have him playing in that, it's not like you had to leave anyone out to put him in. It was just an opportunity to give him a bit of a free hit, it felt like. And once again, we saw that Rodrigo was not particularly suited to it. And he did say before the Palace game, he, he intimated, I thought, that those were the two options in his head, that it was either Somerville on the right um, with Aronson in the middle or it was going to be Aronson moving out to the right so that um, Rodrigo could play in the middle and Bamford could, could play up front. I agree with you about Rodrigo and what I found quite revealing when we dug into the, the attacking stats this week was just how much, again, a little bit like Harrison, how much has gone through Rodrigo, how much of the attacking play he's seen, how many chances he's seen, um, the, the goals he's scored in comparison to just about everybody else in the team, especially Bamford. I'm I'm still not convinced that Rodrigo fits at Leeds. It fits the, the intensity of the football that both Bielsa and Marsh want to play. But I can't help feeling, part of me feels that because there's been this struggle to get Bamford up to 100%. And Marsh said today that Bamford had had today, talking about Friday, had had today off because, again, they were just trying to keep him in shape. They were just trying to keep him fit, keep him, um, I guess, following the, the sort of trajectory that they want him to have. And, and ultimately, I would guess, to, to not push him too hard. Um, it makes me think more and more about whether actually the player they should be lumping on up front is Rodrigo at nine. Um, I didn't think I'd be saying that this season because I still think Bamford's, Bamford's direct running, um, his style of play as a centre forward, I still feel it fits this team far better than Rodrigo does. But who's been scoring the goals and who's been getting on the end of the chances and who's looked a bit more like like taking them? Um, I think it's something that has to be thought about. Well, if you heard the Q&A the other week, Phil, it was suggested that we do a Buckfast drinking game. Every time you drop the B-bomb, the Bielsa bomb, you are to have a shot. You could you could have something non-alcoholic as well. We don't want to promote too much binge drinking, do we? We've got, and we've got the... some. You you have needless to say got some energy drinks, um, which look like they've come from uh, come through a sort of commercial sponsorship <laughs> deal um, stacked behind us. I won't say what they are um, because uh, I probably shouldn't. Um, but it looks oh, looks well, very I, very. Tempting, I was just going to say, say though, you did um, apple flavored. You did drop the B bomb in there, so that's that's, that's one shot. shot number one. Shall we um, shall we top them up and just drink them all? 
on New Year's Eve. And again, we're trying to dissuade people from this. I'm not sure this is this is necessarily the route down which we want to go. We'll Mind you, you could, do, you could do an athletic long read on the, the monks of the, the book Fast Abbey. Who, yeah, why not? And, and so why on not? and so forth. Injuries, we had an update. We'll come back to the attacking stuff actually yeah, in part three because we want to talk about it in a little bit little bit more depth. The injuries update. Yelda had his appendectomy appendix out, so he's out for a week, but he's back on the pitch. For sure, surgery went okay. Um, Archie Gray's on the pitch, but not available. Um, Harvey Sutcliffe torn ACL, which is the second time he's done it, which is a shame. He's yeah, not only, good for him. Only a very young man. Um, Dallas, hopefully part of the group in December, and everyone else is okay, including Junior Furpo. So um, pull on any of those threads that you want. Yeah, it was made to sound as if Dallas will certainly go with them to do what they do when the World Cup break is on. And, and as I've said before, the plan, if, it, if everything falls into place, would be to, to head to the States for a short period of time. Of more interest than that, I think, was probably that Furpo is fit but won't start on Sunday. Um, that question was asked specifically, you know, will he play ahead of strike given that he is a left-back strike? Kind of isn't. To which Marsh said, strike is playing at high level and will stay there. You know, He said he will start against Arsenal. I don't think I can disagree with that, to be honest. I think he's doing okay as, as strike. And even though I've said previously that you feel with football that if he's ever going to find a rhythm and a flow at Leeds, he needs to get into the team. It doesn't feel like the stage at which you want to be disrupting that. I think when you're a little bit out of form or you're needing results, and and I suppose it, I suppose to be fair, Marsh made this point. It feels like a long time since the last league win, and it is a long time since the last league win. But that's because they've hardly played any games this season, and there's been this massive break um, in the middle of it already. But it is the Chelsea game when last had a win, and he said, you know, we're, we're desperate to get this going again. And I think when you're starting to feel the need to get a win on the board, the last thing you want to start doing is um, to mess around with positions where things look relatively steady. How long until we consider Strauch a left-back and someone who and someone who can <laughs> provide genuine cover there? Because it's felt like since the start of the season we've been saying... August, Michael. He's playing, re- he's playing really well considering he's a centre-back. But the more he plays, the better he seems to get at it. So do you reach a point where you go, well, actually... He can kind of do it now. Well, that's what they're doing, isn't it? Well, yeah, but is it, was that part of the plan? Or did they just... Is well, that, this, is this that just stands, occurred? That stands to reason, doesn't Strikes it? Strikes me as on they a, are, yeah. On a totally amateur level, it's like turning up a, a kickboxing class as a fat M41-year-old. Th- um, you were then, just... That was a very specific example, Phil. Would you care to enlighten <laughs> yeah, us? Yeah, and then, and then fat, seeing... Fat Scottish? <laughs> yes, yeah, very much so. And, and bold. And, and then seeing where you are in a year's time which is pretty much where I am with it and actually realising that without being Bruce Lee or Liam Harrison you'd get better you know you, you are improving you get a bit more flexible you're starting to starting to get to grips with it more so if Strike has a long run of games at left back um, he certainly looks like he can be competent there I, I don't think his body shape is ever going to properly lend itself to being a modern wing back but then interestingly we're, we're writing about Cody Gakpo for next week. Um, Hackpo, as we, Hackpo, we've got a call. Hackpo, Hackpo, sorry, Hackpo, yes. Um, need to write that on the back of my hand. <laughs> so that, um, you know, to, before the, um, the the Europa League game that's coming up between Arsenal and, and PSV Eindhoven, and every time you speak to anybody about Hackpo, uh, they always well, say well <laughs> his body shape is really intriguing because he is six foot two, six foot three. He's the sort of size that would not make you think automatically looking at him as he's a he's a winger but he just has this natural agility and natural ability to to play despite his height you know to, to play as a winger to be really quick to be great 1v1 um, and everything else so it's not to say that Strike can't cope there and I have to say if, if Strike settles in longer term and is fine um, or better than fine 
There isn't going to be a lot of clamour to replace him, is there? A bit like Ben White, isn't it, for Arsenal? I was going to say, and you look at the other the other fullback, Tommy Asu's playing there for for Arsenal. Both of those are uh, over six foot, aren't they? So, and it does happen. And Dan Byrne is freakishly tall. Well, that's it. And one of the things with Ben White is that technically he's very good. You know, he's good on the ball and he can cope with the ball coming to him a lot. And and when you're out wide, you're receiving the ball and usually in tighter areas than you are at centre back. You've got to be quicker on it. You've got to be sharper with it. And I think. I think somebody like White can cope with that, but I don't think I particularly look at White and think there's a wing back in the making. I think, you know, he's long term, he's going to be very good in the middle of defence, isn't he? It doesn't bode well particularly that our best left back is currently someone we didn't know was a left back a few months ago. But it was the risk, wasn't it? It was the risk going into this season without signing one that that, that might happen. And and also Helder, who has played at left back, looks like he can play at left back. Again, you're talking about a more of a central defender moving across there but somebody who might have been an alternative has but you know had injuries now obviously the the appendix as well appendix out um, meaning that that he's missed games um but no it he's lost some weight though if he shed the appendix well yeah yeah so all good <laughs> I, I had mine out when I was 12 I didn't shed any weight just, <laughs> just kept me in Edinburgh infirmary for four nights that, that, that was it and got a few days off school which is quite good um but yeah it 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 was part. There were two things in the summer, weren't there? There was centre forward. Do we need centre forward? Do we need another left back? Um, yes to both. And because there wasn't a left back coming in, it meant that it was going to be football. And if it wasn't football, once Leif Davis left to Ipswich, it was going to be somebody adapting to fit there. So Harrison or Helder or as it is, Strike. You know, Strike is a left footer, so it, it can be done. But he's not somebody who has been a left back from uh, the year dot. Happy birthday, Leeds United. Leeds United, 103 years old on Monday. Seems like two minutes since the centenary in a lot of respects. It's been a pandemic in the middle. It's sort of made time all stand still or speed up or weird stuff's gone on. Yeah, because we, we spoke when we spoke to um, Rob over on one of our shows, Rob, one of our, our writers and uh, podcasters, and he went over to, to Castellon to see Pablo. And he pointed out the last time he'd seen Pablo play in the flesh was against Huddersfield. I was like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah. It is that long ago. I mean, I, I loved the centenary because it drove you towards finding out about, far more about, I think, the club's history and bits of history, corners of it that you hadn't looked into before. Um, I We did a long piece um, which kind of looked at all the different eras of Leeds United. So uh, as we got closer to the modern day, it went through the decades. But prior to that, you know, did a piece pre-war um, which looked at Tom Jennings, prolific striker they had. Um, back before the um, Second World War. And then after that um, piece on John Charles' post-war era, I went to meet his son who was running a pub um, out towards um, Selby Way. Um, lovely guy and great stories. I mean, the, the, it was quite sad with Tom Jennings. He, he In the end, he um, he lived up towards Glasgow. And I went up there to just to dig around a little bit. Um, I'd hoped to ask the people at the house where he lived when, when he died if they had any idea that they owned or rented a house owned by somebody who was such a good footballer in his time. I suspect the answer was absolutely not. And did a little bit of digging around as well to try and find out where he was buried and there didn't seem to be any reference to it at all, certainly not in the local area. Um, I mean, he must must be buried somewhere. But um, asked various councils and there just was was nothing at all. And quite intriguing, I, I spoke to Eddie Gray about him and, you know, Eddie was saying... Tom Jennings is probably the sort of guy that you look at and say, well, it was a different era back then. The rules were different. You know, it was like this, that and the other. But you don't score that many goals without being an absolutely terrific player. And he said, you know, he's one of the guys who you'd love to know 
a bit more about we'd love to actually have any chance to see which you, you never will you know no no video footage of any of his games I don't think and then we strayed I went to see Brendan Ormsby who hasn't been well for a long time Brendan and wasn't well when I went to see him his powers of speech are really not there although he has that amazing Ormsby twinkle in his eye which makes you realise that he's he's got he's got some stories to tell from through his through his career but it's it's got a really really rich heritage leads as, as you'd expect over a, a hundred years but very very deep I think and you can see why people become so attached to the club I do wonder out of all the players who've played for Leeds United in their history how many have gone on to become pub landlords because obviously, <laughs> obviously yeah. Peter Lorimer did wasn't it? it was one of the, just one of those things you did from from back then or a sports shop yeah. they, were, they were basically your options as a retired footballer and, and a few did insurance sales as well I think didn't they in the, um, in the sort of 70s 80s that was another route yeah because none of them give or take, earned enough money to just retire, you know, just to head off and and basically be comfortable for the rest of their lives. It's not as if they didn't earn anything. It's not as if they didn't earn well for the time. But the wages weren't as extreme as they are now. I mean, you've reached the level now where there are players who earn more in a single week, okay, pre-tax, than some people play on in their entire lifetime. And a fair few of them as well. And it wasn't like that back then. So, you know, you did have people like Peter, who one of the best players of his generation, best goal scorers of his generation, who did not have much towards the end. You know, you had other people like Eddie, obviously, who subsequently managed and then coached during the O'Leary era. But none of these guys are in any way flash or, um, and they're all incredibly approachable as well. I, I find that from, from that era. And I always thought that was one of the, the best and most likable things about the Reavy squad was that with most of them, it wasn't, I'm sure to people who support the club, and I didn't when I was young, but I'm sure to people who support support the club, you know, it's there's the, that kind of um, godlike syndrome when you're standing, standing talking to them, but they don't really make you feel like that. And you don't feel as if you're having to, if you want to interview them or anything else, you never feel as if you're having to jump over hurdles, jump through hoops um, in order to do it. They just, I did a, there was a book published about four or five years ago um, and I did a chapter for it with Mick Jones. Um, and I phoned Mick up and said, I'd just like to come down and you know, meet you to chat to you. And he said, yeah, just come to my house tomorrow. So I did, you know, and it was fine. Sat, sat there, I spoke to him, his wife was there, chipped in with a few stories, absolutely lovely. And he's got some great stories. I think I've likened it in the past too. Have you ever seen the book or the film, The Right Stuff, which is about the astronauts, the early astronauts, the, yeah. the test pilots, the proper, you know, getting strapped to a rocket and fired off, off into the upper atmosphere type stuff. And it took an incredible amount of, um, character and fibre to basically on minerals just to put yourself up there thinking I'm just going to get shot into the atmosphere I might not come back and those that, that stripe of, of astronaut of test pilot was called the right stuff and that's what I always liken that that team to like there is that kind of down to earth quality to them but also that that star quality as well that real magnetism I think as well that one of the things that interests me about football clubs is the way in which as time goes on even the difficult periods really difficult periods, you can become quite affectionate about further down the line. You know, at the point where it all becomes benign, so you don't feel angry about it anymore because it's so long ago and there's no point. I mean, I, I know that some of the Reavy players are still, boss word, you know, those that have left us, uh, some of them were very, very angry about um, 1975 and, and the final, but you'll speak to some others who say, look, it was so long ago now, you know, <laughs> what what is what is the point, you know? <laughs> Keeping yourself awake at night. I mean, uh, you say that, but then again, I'm still 
angry about God and Watson's dive in the 6-1 Leeds United at Hillsborough in the championship winning season of 91-92. Yeah, if, if, I, I, if I met him in a pub, I'd have a go about it. Yeah, the, 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 there are certain aspects in which I love being petty about <laughs> football, you know, like that. I don't think you could, uh, to be fair to the, the Reavy squad, I don't think you could call it petty. I mean, that was the, I always remember, you know, Peter Lorimer saying to me, it was supposed to be the biggest, uh, biggest night of our careers. And in the end, it was just the disappointment of our lives. And that's how it was. It never came around again. That was that. And, and you know, the squad had started to break up by that point, but it kind of hastened afterwards. I mean, Alan Clark said to me quite openly, you know, I struggle to shake Beckenbell's hand now, struggle to be civil with him in the street because of what went on in that game. I think there are others who feel totally different. But that's what, that's what makes you tapestry as a football club, isn't it? You know, even like the, even the Chilino... And GFH years, they were like GFH were like the banter years. GFH were like the village idiots, weren't they? And Chilino was just Chilino. And I guess when you look back, and particularly it helps when you've had intervening years which have been incredible in the way that the la- you know, some of the last four or five were. Um, I don't know whether affectionate is the right word, but you can be a bit more philosophical about it all, and I guess you can laugh a little bit more as well. It's it's no club, no club rides at the top forever. Talking about footballers' earnings there, I've just done some back-of-the-fag packet calculations. You see the reports of um, Erling Haaland earning £900,000 a week at Man City. Is that all? Apparently, well, he's on the same sort of, um, you know, basic, I say basic, like it's, basic. You know, he's, basic. he's on minimum wage, yeah. but he's on, you know, he's on the same, you know, limits as the rest of the squad. Like he hasn't gone outside the uh, the wage structure, but uh, with all the bonuses tied up, he's on 900000 I mean, I don't know if it's true, it was just a report that um, made it into the press. But you break it down. Do you know how much he earns? He earns ninety pounds a second. A second, if that's true. I am. Um, my first job was at the Lebanon, Inn, um, which sadly burned down. True story. And I was paid two pounds an hour to wash dishes. This was nineteen ninety six, I think. And, and do you look back on that one fondly now? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The rich, <laughs> rich tapestry. Now you're, now you're on ninety pounds an hour at the Athletic. It's I, easy to laugh at it. I was. I was saying when. Um, no, no denial. <laughs> <laughs> I I was saying when um, Haaland was pictured on the this, on City's Twitter feed signing his contract, I was saying to somebody in our office, it must be a, it, essentially the contract must be like when you start any job, you know, you get given a contract, you got to sign in the right places. It's all got to be done legally, and everybody's contract says you will be paid if it's an annual salary, you will be paid per annum X, you know, so twenty thousand pounds, thirty thousand pounds, whatever it is. His must have said something like, you'll be paid per annum 40 million quid. <laughs> I just think, what at, at his age, what, what are you going to do with it? You know, where's it? Where's Al- it Alfie Harland there looking over his shoulder, just rubbing his hands. <laughs> and there has to be a point where you go in and you turn down the one that says 30 million because you go, I think you get more than that. <laughs> I also, also think, like, you know, if, if you just had a current account at, say, NatWest or RBS or something and suddenly, you know, 40 million quid a year going into it, would they say, can't? can't really accommodate this. No, they do, don't they, though? Have you ever seen, like, the, very occasionally you've seen, like, screen grabs or somebody's photographed, like, a you know, one of the information slips you could get from the, the cash point or mm. maybe even photograph the cash point itself? I think it, they do. Yeah. I mean, you're sensible. yeah if you well, had been sensible, you'd invest it somewhere, why wouldn't not? you? But... Well, if, if the square ball ever um, escalates to that level, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> we'll be sure to be on the phone. Sorry, Athletic. But... <laughs> I'll, never, I'll, I'll never hear from you again. <laughs> no. Um, going back to that centenary thing, I actually missed the centenary game because my wedding anniversary is around this week in the calendar because I went for the international calendar, uh, the international weekend to get married, which I thought was uh, good forward planning. What, what do you remember of that game? It was a good narrative because it was Phillips with the goal 
and it was it was actually quite trademark Leeds and Bielsa in that they dominated and they dominated and as Bielsa used to talk about a lot we have a lot of chances but we don't take enough of them the the efficiency thing but in the end it was Phillips who was there and it was just a it was a it was a cracking day in what was shaping up to be a cracking season and I I think it's a good thing that the centenary fell when it did I mean I, I get that what, it was a hundred years on from I when get, I get that it was always going to fall a hundred years after the the club's inception. But what I mean is, had it, every time that doesn't it? To, I suppose to to put that the other way around, it's a good thing that the Bielsa era coincided with the centenary, as opposed to some of the other seasons that could have fallen on that date. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like I've I've never quite forgiven the club for the kit they came up with. It wasn't bad. It just didn't have any particular historical re- um, relevance. I mean, like. That, you know the laces around the neck is not something that means anything. So I didn't, I could never quite forgive them for that, and the fact that they only put out like a limited edition uh, number of them. I think they could have sold tens of thousands of that. Loads of people would have would have bought it. However, whatever criticisms you want to direct at them, could you imagine, like you say, if GFH had been in charge of of this particular thing, or even yeah, if the centenary so, game had had seventeen thousand people at it, who were all, who were all kind of miffed. Absolutely, it quite the same if it had been Leeds one Bolton five or something like that, you know, it would just not have been not have been what uh, anybody anybody was looking for. I mean, Bielsa was he was describing the Phillips goal when he said uh, sometimes God put think, puts things in the right place, didn't he? But I think that can apply to Bielsa as well for that period that he was yeah. he happened to be there for for that game, and we were on a on the upward swing, weren't we, for a, for a change? Um, speaking of unlimited budgets and things like that, then so a final question just to to close out this part. If you had uh, endless amounts of money, what would you buy Leeds United for its birthday? I would buy its million plus fans a mindfulness audiobook each. <laughs> Why are you getting into your mindfulness at the minute? Yeah, aren't I keep waiting on about this, don't I? But it's actually actually been really good. Um, it's are you, it, are you it, becoming a monk, Phil, with all the kickboxing and your mindfulness? My wife keeps saying to me, "You're becoming very zen, you," which I don't think anybody's you got, ever, you got the monk's haircut. ever described. Him. <laughs> but, you, but you are dangerous, just to be clear as well. <laughs> yeah, um, it's. Do, do you think we're too highly strung as a fan base? Are we worse than others? There's there's a very very good reason. No, not worse than others. No, I think every single fo- uh, football fan base in the world is highly strung, with the, only a few exceptions. Um, there's a reason for that, and that is because it can be a very stressful environment. Let's be honest; it's easy to sit now and think that and f- make yourself feel as if the the BLC era seemed to go on for ages because it was so good. And it's easy now to sit and think that that is late. You know, that's that's how it is. But I always remind myself that of the you know almost twenty years that I've been writing about them, um, quite a few were fairly forgettable, and quite a few were unforgettable for pretty ridiculous reasons. So yeah. The, the ability to just breathe is good for everybody, I think. Did, did you say there's no budget? No budget. All right, I'll have four left-backs and four strikers <laughs> in that case. That's a, that is actually a great idea. Yeah, just load up every single position <laughs> and then we don't have to bother with transfer windows and we don't have to bother with um, discussions about where the light And Pascal Strauch still starts. Because uh, he's in form, he's doing all right. I think if it had to be a physical thing rather than, a, than footballers, a West Stand, a new West Stand and a magician to make it built instantly so we'd have more capacity yeah how much is that going to cost you? doesn't matter does it I've got a limitless budget mm, true true yeah like you score a ball it's all been a bit doom and gloom recently Phil so you're going to give me something to be positive about now we're not bad going forward reasonable? statistically yes have you written about this by the way this has been written about yes I certainly have yeah um, wrote about this on Wednesday with Mark Carey um, one of our data guys 
Um, he said after the game, Marsh, on Sunday, we don't score enough goals. Um, and just to flesh that out a little bit, I think what he meant was, and what he, what he actually said was, in the periods of the games when we're on top, we don't score enough goals. And that was, that was to a degree, the story at Palace. You know, that chance for Bamford, the point of the game where Leeds were, were very dominant, could have, I think at 2-0, that would have asked a hell of a lot of Palace. So that could conceivably have, have killed the game. Um, and he said again today, he was asked what he was happy with and he thinks Leeds are defensively more sound. Um, he thinks they've been competitive in games, which I think is a fair comment. Uh, but he said goal scoring is something that we, we need to improve. So we went and we had a look at, went away and had a look at the data to see, cause sometimes with your eye, naked eye, you can sit and think, they, a lot of people said toothless after Palace. You know, I saw that word used a lot and you can think not creating enough, not looking looking dangerous. And the stats kind of put them mid-table um, for things like shots on goal, shots on target, expected goals. Goal scored isn't especially high, but it's not horrific in the way that, you know, Wolves tally is with, with three Wolves, so far this Wolves season. Wolves scored three goals. Wow. Can you imagine? You know, it's... It, People talk to me a lot about, well, from time to time, about the George Graham season. You know, the the struggle for anything at home um, or wins, spectacular wins. Three goals at this stage from Wolves is not a lot to chew on. What, um, what did we score? That was the 96-97 season, wasn't it? The George Graham one. And we scored, was it 28 goals? I think something like that. Something like that. I know in the Championship, Preston have still only scored eight. Yeah. And they're, but they're somehow eighth. Right. Eight from well, 18, 14 games. Well, Bournemouth, incredibly, are averaging less, fewer, sorry, fewer than seven shots on goal a game you know which is not very many I mean Manchester City and I know they're not great to team to compare them with but they're up at 18 you know 18 shots a game Bournemouth are down at um, uh, uh, Bournemouth have a ridiculously low number of attempts that have even looked like leading to goals and and somehow they've got themselves up um, into double figures already so it's not always an exact science but I think what data people always feel and what's quite often proven is that the numbers tend to level out eventually. So if if they show you as a side who don't create much, don't score much, that is likely to catch up with you at somewhere further down the line, even if you kind of buck the trend at one stage or other. Or other. Um, what I think it tells you is that Leeds, when they're playing to their full potential, probably have what they need as an attacking force to be safe this season. I think what it doesn't give them is a huge amount of leeway to a waste chances to be below drop below what is the general highest standard, um, or c I guess to to make little or not enough of the periods of the game where they are dominant because I don't think they're a side who are going to run riot for ninety minutes too often. They're a side, a side who are definitely going to have spells in games, and when they have spells in games, might well look look really good. But they're going to have to punish those and they're going to have to take advantage of them. Um, and that will probably be the key to a, a steady run of results. So just to flesh out the whole George Graham thing, this was the 96-97 season. We finished 11th that season. Slap bang in the middle. 38-game season as well. Uh, we finished on 46 points, which um, which wasn't bad, all things considered. We uh, played 38, won 11, drew 13, lost 14, scored 28 goals and only conceded 38, which was one of the lowest in the division. And it was lower than both uh, Man United, who won the league and conceded 44, and Newcastle, who finished second and conceded 40. Um, so it it uh, it weren't right bad. No, there, was, um, there were certainly little runs in that in that season where there were two or three nil nils in a row as well, and I think those ones really really weigh you down as a fan going to watch going to watch a, th- a third game in a row where there's not been a goal. It was think. it was just before Christmas, Michael. We we drew three 
on the bounce. Middlesbrough away, nil-nil. Spurs at home, nil-nil. Everton away, nil-nil. None of them actually bad results. <laughs> no. It's the thing. But... Just die at a moment. Well, that was followed by Coventry at home. We lost then. Man United away, we lost then. And then January the 1st, Newcastle away, we lost then. So we didn't win a game from the 30th of November to the 11th of, of January that season. Do you remember that fan base in Italy who did that thing where they all came with massive oh, arrows, arrows and ran either side of the goal pointing in, in the right direction? I mean, Leeds at the moment, uh, the, their expected goals for this season is 11, the, the bang on 11. And that's that's kind of around about 10th in the division. So numerically, they're, they're not struggling, especially. But I think they haven't, they haven't filed properly, have they, since the um, since the Chelsea game? And Marsh is aware of that. I think the tone of the press conference today, I think it made you, made you aware that he's aware that there is a bit of chuntering out there and that they could do with getting a win um, a win on the board. That the results, you know, the last sort of five results haven't been great or haven't been as good as he would have liked. And I always think, even in short periods where it's not going as you want it to go, it is expedient for a head coach to acknowledge that, you know, and as opposed to just the, the whole thing of this is fine and everything's fine to, you know, acknowledge the fact that, yeah, you, you do want to turn this on its head. And this is a really hard game on Sunday. But after that, it's Leicester away and Fulham at home. And I think those are games that Leeds have to be taking points from. And it does crank the pressure up, though, the fact that we've kind of gone on this mediocre run, doesn't it? Just that little bit. Do you, do you think that maybe that's where, where um, Marsh's defensiveness came from? Because what I thought, and just returning to the question that I started this show with, was you asked him a fairly benign, open question about you know the plans, the, the different plan A, plan B, and all that. Um, and he gave a long answer. It almost felt like he was, I don't know, trying to defend himself. It made me think that he'd been thinking about it through the week and perhaps had been aware that, that people publicly were asking about that. You know, how easily can this team adapt? How, how much of a, a plan B do they have if you want to use the phrase plan B? I mean, I, I agree with him that it's a it's probably a simplistic way to, to put it because you don't just shift from one scheme to another, do you? It can, it, it can be kind of gradual. I just wonder, and you can maybe answer this, whether you think the scope for clubs to come under pressure and for a lot of clubs to potentially come under pressure is pretty massive this season. Looking at the field and looking at how tight it is, how many sides from eighth down do you think are even thinking about European football, a European qualification. How many of them are even remotely bothered about that? Taking out Liverpool in tenth, for example, who cannot, you know, cannot finish tenth. That is that that would just ask huge questions over there. But everybody else, how many of those sides are sitting saying, Yeah, it'd be great to get into Europe? And how many are saying, quite happy staying up this season? Well, I was gonna say, do you know what that is though? That's exactly because the reward of getting into either the conference league or the Europa League feels so small in comparison to the jeopardy of financial jeopardy of going down. So unless you can and get it the, means extra games. Yeah, yeah. So unless you get into the, the, the Champions League, you almost feel there's almost like a pervading attitude of not sure we can bother with this. Now I'm sure like, you know, West Ham's run late into the Europa League, they loved it, absolutely loved it last season. I would kill to see Leeds in a European final. It'd be absolutely amazing to do that. But football as a whole doesn't really embrace the the two lesser European competitions versus the wealth on offer in the Premier League. I was just looking at the table with that with that in mind actually I think probably other than Man City, who would obviously be able to win it and probably will ultimately, Man United, who would probably want to be in the Champions League places and Liverpool, who are way down, and obviously the bottom three. I think everyone else in the division would take what they are now. Would just go, yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> just stop it now. I say from the bottom three. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I mean, but all, but all but the bottom three and then a yeah. few other teams. Everyone else would go, yeah, fine. We're and not I, down. And I think that's probably why everyone's felt a little bit doom and gloom about all this because... 
there's a certain futility attached to being in the Premier League and you can get swept up by it, can't you, when you know, when things are just a bit mediocre. Yeah. I mean, looking at the, the bottom half of the table, you've got Leeds, no wins in five. You've got Palace, who were on defeat, draw, draw, defeat before the win at Selhurst Park. Villa, not in form. You've got Southampton, four defeats in a row. Wolves, three defeats in a row. Forest, um, draw, ended a, a run of defeats there. Leicester, uh, one win in, in five. Looking at this BBC table, it might actually be, be longer than that, their run. There's quite a lot of, there's quite a lot of streaks down there that could do with ending some some point soon. This isn't an easy game for Leeds to end it in at home to Arsenal. No pretending that at all. But to go back to that comment from Marsh, him saying, you know, we we are, we do want to turn this around. You know, we do feel that it's been a long time since the Chelsea win. We we do want to to get on top of of this. I think that's the right way to think about it. I think complacency is really really dangerous in this division. Really dangerous catches up with you really quickly. So while it's not as if you know five games does not constitute, I don't think a massive or substantial loss of form but I think it takes you into that probably into that ballpark where that's what it can become if you don't manage to sort it out and as I say I'm not pretending that Arsenal this weekend is a point where the odds will say Leeds will sort it out but it is Leicester away next weekend it is uh, sorry next Thursday it is Fulham at home next weekend those are games you target no? You do yeah 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 I mean where can we hurt Arsenal that's the question I mean and what needs to happen for us to get something out of that game. We, we were talking about the need almost for something to unbalance the game, a bit of a madness, weren't we, Michael? Let's say, like, you know, maybe, maybe a, a, an early penalty or a red card for Arsenal would really put the cat among the pigeons there. I think so. They are a different team this or, season. Or a Mendy-style mistake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which, to, to look at that game, the Chelsea game, in isolation, there was already, it was already starting to build on Chelsea slightly by that point. But that really put the question mark in the heads, Chelsea's heads, about, you know what? The, how the game, the rest of the game was going to go, and the one thing that always happens in those circumstances is that Ellen Road is incredibly good at getting on top of the the opposition team. Um, in a way that I just don't think opposition players enjoy. They're opposition players who love coming and dealing with that um, atmosphere when it goes well or when they cope with it. But it's 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 not great when you're under the caution and when it's all going against you. I can't see. Arsenal doing anything other than coming and attacking. I cannot see them coming and trying to kill the first 25 minutes, half an hour, in the way that we saw Villa do and and other teams this season. It just makes no sense. They're on such a roll at the moment. The signing of Jesus has been brilliant for them. I mean, it, it, I thought when they took him that that seemed like, for the money, really, really good deal. And combined with that, it feels to me as if the players who... Arteta and Arsenal have been saying for a while will come good are starting to come good quite spectacularly and with Michael I still think this will go City's way in the end but they're a totally different team and I just don't see having beaten Liverpool last weekend I don't see I don't see Arteta underestimating this fixture but I just cannot see him saying right you know what we're going to go to Ellen Road and we're going to keep it tight I just think he will say back yourselves because and, and in, a, well, in a perverse way though doesn't that well, give, the, give us more of a chance. That it, this is what I, this is what I was going to say. Is their attacking think, intent leaves leaves the opportunity yeah, and the it, space it, for us to go into it. It, it does, um, and it will. It will hopefully, if things go well, it will hopefully bring out little traits like Anson's, you know, tendency to break through space over the halfway line through the centre circle when gaps open up. It will give you know people like Sinistera and Harrison to attack the gaps as they are. Um, assuming they open up out wide in behind Arsenal as well. That I think. I don't think you'd want to suggest going toe-to-toe um, because I think you have to employ a, a little bit of caution 
but I would suggest that in order to to get anything from this game or to win anything or to win this game, Leeds will have to be absolutely ready and committed to going for gold when it opens up. Yeah, and you know what you're not going to find. I mean, in very simple terms, you're not going to find Arsenal sitting there in two banks of four, are they? Are you on the edge of their area? You're no. going to hopefully have a little bit of space to play in because that's what seems to have stymied us a little bit this season is that we try and play this this narrow style through the middle and we just meet banks of players and can't get through them and you end up seeing that horrible, ugly pinball stuff and it forces players into doing stuff that maybe looks a little bit more industrial um, to try and break the deadlock. Whereas Arsenal, you get the sense that there might just be a little bit of space to play in and, and an opportunity for players like Aronson, Sinistera, maybe just to get on the ball and, and do one or two bits. Yeah, I think it's the unfortunate thing is that the teams, to judge by what's gone on so far, the teams who come to Ellen Road and really have a pop are going to be the teams who are by far most difficult to beat. You know, Liverpool are not going to come here and be negative. Man City are not going to come here and be negative. Arsenal won't do, I don't think, um, at the weekend. So it's hard, like you say, without a little bit of madness, it's hard to make a huge case for Leeds winning this. Um, I think the odds will be heavily in Arsenal's favour and they are they are definitely, definitely on a roll at the moment. But I still wonder whether they have it in them to throw in the odd off day Arsenal. I don't think actually they had that much of an off day at Old Trafford when they lost to Manchester United. It was a kind of strange game that, which they were in. And I think, you know, we'll probably look back on and think they, they could actually have edged themselves if certain things had gone slightly differently. So yeah, you might be right. A bit of madness would be great. Just talk to me about Harrison then, because we mentioned him um, back in part one and his involvement in Legionnaires' attacking play and how crucial is he going to be on, on Sunday? Well, and I mean, is, is, he, is he an unsung hero for Leeds? Well, I don't, I don't know about you, but it's felt to me all season as if the play was moving far more towards the left than it was towards the right. And the game that jumped out to me most was Brentford, where Harrison actually came off at half-time. And I think I tweeted at half-time to say a huge amount has gone down his side of the pitch. You know, Brentford have been doubling up on him um, not easy for him to do anything, but the ball is going to him time and time again. And Mark Carey, one of our data writers, he had a look at where Leeds United have created most of their chances from this season. So he mapped out a grid of the pitch, splitting it into kind of different areas outside the box, inside the box, on, on the wings and everything. And he found, unsurprisingly, that the highest number by far, 17%, had come both directly outside the D, so, you know, through balls into the box or, or whatever else from there, but also out on the left-hand side, wide left, um, which to which some will probably be corners, um, but also some will be Harrison's industry. And then when you start digging into Harrison's numbers, generally, most chances created, Harrison on 19, um, and you've got Anderson and Tyler Adams next on 10. Most big chances created is also Harrison with four, two-ahead of Rodrigo and strike. Most chances from dead balls, Harrison on eight. Uh, most crosses from open play, Harrison on 23. Most dribbles, Harrison on 35. He is absolutely crucial to this. The way Leeds are playing is making him absolutely crucial to this. And there's a hell of a lot being asked of him. And it did seem to me that if you were looking for somewhere where Leeds could perhaps be a bit more, penetrate a bit more, be a bit more dangerous, then, you know, wide right where you have sometimes Aronson, but it does mix up, but, you know, Sinistera as well, with Christensen in behind, that does look like a position where you could cut loose a bit more. Both of you then. Who's your centre forward? Who's your starting centre forward on? On Sunday. Now you're mentioning um, Rodrigo being up front. It's kind of planted the idea in my head that maybe does does Bamford drop to the bench or is he for you like you nailed on starter? I think Bamford starts again. I think, I think he does. I think Marsh spoke today about he he's not quite where we wanted him to be fitness wise, but he's getting there. And I think the fact he's been given a day off today probably suggests that 
it's just go home and get yourself fresh for the weekend. I would be very surprised if he lasted the 90 minutes mm. uh, of the weekend, but I think if we're going to try and play him into some form and some fitness, he's got to play. And, and truthfully, these games are a little bit of a free hit where you, you don't actually expect to get any points. So in, in some ways, it's better for him to get fit in this than to be getting fit against Fulham in a game that I guess you would look at on paper and say we have to win. It might be quite a revealing decision because he's not going to drop Anderson, is he? And you would assume that Sinistera will come back in. I know he had the red card against Villa, which was was a bit brainless, but he's played really well and looked really good, really tricky. Um, I think you, you want him in the team. So if that is the case, it becomes a straight choice between Bamford and Rodrigo. As I say, when I was writing about the two of them and, and writing about the attacking stats, it did start to jump out how much more Rodrigo has contributed this season. I know he's played more, but even so, even if you boil it down per 90 minutes, um, which is sometimes the best way to, to figure this out, he has been more effective. But I know what we've seen over the last two years, and I also can't deny that looking at Bamford, I think his style suits this far better. But he needs to be fully fit and he needs to be absolutely on it. And that has been a challenge so far. Well, fingers crossed Arsenal have an off day and fingers crossed that Leeds United have an on day. Birthday on the mind. You don't want to ruin your birthday, do you, the day after by uh, by losing on Sunday? The way Arsenal's front three have written on the uh, the notes from the, the press, which says, it's all, it's a sentence, actually. It says, Martinelli, Saka, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see that if that's applicable when we uh, come back together on, on Monday, you and I, Phil, and we will uh, we'll debrief the Arsenal game. Um, and we'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show. 